Welcome to the Prep Talk. We're getting you ready for your weekend parties. Now, this podcast is designed to equip you with interesting stories, anecdotes, facts, or just cool things that are going on within specific professions. So that, say, you're heading to a party or a networking event full of architects, which is what we'll be discussing today, and you have no idea what to talk to them about. You're not an architect. You have never dealt with architects before. So this will give you, let's call it, social ammunition in order to converse with those architects. Now, this show came about when I went to a conference a year ago and completely shoved my foot in my mouth for about an hour and a half. I was supposed to take these two prospective clients out on what my boss called, and I quote, a platonic date, end quote. You know, take them out for drinks, schmooze, and charm them so much so that they opened an account right on the spot, right? So these two guys came, and they were telling me all these stories about seeing Jack White play at Red Rocks in Denver, which, by the way, if you've never been to Red Rocks in Denver, it's an amazing concert venue, and everyone should go at least once. So they tell me about Jack White, then getting a private tour of the Denver Capitol building at like 2 in the morning, and, you know, in hindsight... I should have let them just carry on with a few questions sprinkled in, some laughs and smiles at the proper time. But what did I do? No. I thought, hey, my job here is to go and charm these guys, and I'm epically failing. I'm not contributing anything to this conversation. Um, crap, like the only thing I have are jokes, right? I, I'm a great joke teller, which... P.S. I am a really terrible joke teller, and I have a few jokes that I loved in middle school and then continue to tell them. I still think they're brilliant. This is basically what I have to work with. One of these jokes was, how do you tell the difference between an X and a Y chromosome? <laughs> Guys, you pull their jeans down. It's brilliant. I freaking love it. Um, so, one of the guys who P.S. totally had this terrible Rod Stewart haircut and was dressed like Nickelback, turned to me and said, um, you're, you're kind of a dork. Uh, oh, number one, you shouldn't say that to people. That's just rude. And number two, I realized at that point I completely just I lost them, and needless to say, we did not open the account. So after that, I started researching everything I could about networking and the art of conversation. And through all of that research, the prep talk was created. Okay, so let's just dive right on in to story number one, Japanese architecture. For an architect starting their career, Japan may be the place to relocate. There is an abundance of very cool and innovative home design little of which is found in the U.S., where we tend to favor more conservative designs that we can live with longer. According to Stephen Dubner at Freakonomics, homes in Japan rarely stay standing for more than 30 years. 30 
years. Say you're in the market for a new home in Japan. Statistics show that you typically make a purchase based on the location and land value more so than the home already on that property. Say you purchase that property, you'll most likely tear down that pre-existing home and build a new one. In 15 years, you're ready to move again. You repeat that exact same process, buy a new house, tear it down, and rebuild your custom home. And because of this trend, you have your architect take more creative licenses. You are more free to express yourself through your home because you don't have to consider the resale value of that home. It really does not matter if your home that's been designed to represent the internet which really exists and can be found on the internet itself by the name of the S house. So it doesn't matter if you've designed this crazy house because the next owner will simply tear it down. So some theories on why a Japanese home is considered a consumer good that depreciates in value are as follows. Newness has long been considered quote, spiritually clean and pure. For example, there's a Shinto shrine that is demolished every 20 years and an identical temple is built on the adjoining property every 20 years. Another theory is related to earthquakes. 20% of all earthquakes over six on the Richter scale happen in Japan. New building codes pop up all the time and contractors use these new codes to encourage people to build safer homes. In reality though, most of the demolished homes are built well and are sufficiently safe. Big box home improvement stores such as Home Depot and Lowe's aren't as prevalent in Japan like they are in the US. People just don't really keep up the maintenance of their homes, such as repainting the exterior. So homes tend to, for a lack of a better word, fall apart within those 30 years and need to be rebuilt. And finally, homes in Japan simply are not thought of as a long-term investment like they are in the US. Okay, so step back a moment. Basically, in order to keep conversation going, you introduce a new topic, such as single-family architecture in Japan, and then through that story, you throw out several other topics for people to pick up on to continue the conversational flow. They can keep going with the Japanese architecture as a topic, or they can take some of the things that you've mentioned within the story, and they can run with those. So, for example, within this story, you've got interesting or crazy architecture in general, lack of creativity in U.S. homes, the amount of time U.S. families spend at Home Depot or on home improvements in general, which for our family is a ton. Other topics could be differences or similarities in Japanese culture versus the U.S. or types of investments, smart or otherwise, such as cars, art, etc. All right, so story number two. Here we go. Recently, the most infamous addition to the London cityscape is the building officially known as 20 Finchurch Street, completed in early 2014 at a cost of 200 million pounds or over 300 million US dollars. 
Now, this building is also better known as the walkie-talkie building because of its distinctive shape. The upper levels of the 34-story skyscraper are larger than the base, so it creates a concave facade on the south face. Now what that concave shape does for a period of about two hours per day is to focus sunlight onto one section of the street below, kind of like a magnifying lens. Within that area, for about, like I said, two hours per day, the temperatures range from around 196 Fahrenheit up to 243 Fahrenheit and were hot enough to melt the side mirrors and a few adjacent panels of a black Jaguar XJ in the summer of 2014. I'm just going to pause for a moment and let that sink in. So this directed sunlight was hot enough to melt a freaking car. It just boggles the mind, right? Now the carpet in the entryway of a nearby barber shop caught on fire from the beam and a journalist successfully fried an egg in the heat. This is not the first time that the walkie-talkie architect, a gentleman from Uruguay, unsuccessfully experimented with this concave design. He also created the Vidara Hotel in Vegas. The concave mirrored facade unfortunately directs the Nevada sunlight onto the pool area, reportedly melting guests' drinks and singeing hair. Singeing hair. So you're at the freaking pool, you're on vacation, and the building that you're staying in is so poorly designed that it directs the sunlight and it's so hot that it melts your hair. Hopefully it's not a very expensive toupee, but... <laughs> yeah, what can you do? Alright, hotel owners tried to mitigate the sunlight by installing large umbrellas over the entire area, although hotel employees still call it the Vidara Death Ray. Back to the walkie-talkie building in London. So, building owners and investors recently installed horizontal sun louvers to help alleviate the intense sun rays. It's kind of like a giant Venetian blind, but at the end of the day, it's still kind of an ugly building, and the giant blind, it doesn't help. Which brings me to the most notable award that 20 Finchurch Street was granted earlier this month of September 2015. It's the prestigious Carbuncle Cup, and I say that with the most sincere sarcasm possible because the Carbuncle Cup began in 2006 by the British magazine Building Design to award, and I quote, the ugliest building in the United Kingdom completed in the last 12 months. The award was created in response to the Sterling Prize begun by the Royal Institute of British Architecture and granted to the best British architecture over the last year. According to Wikipedia, the name of the Carbuncle Cup came from Prince Charles, who said that the proposed modern extension of London's National Gallery was a, quote, monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved and elegant friend, end quote. Apparently, Prince Charles doesn't like modern architecture as a carbuncle is a severe skin abscess, mainly due to a staph infection, which is some nasty business. All right, so... Topics introduced into this story, which could help facilitate conversation down the road, are examples of architecture that do more harm than good, 
um, say who's responsible for testing designs before they're built? Is that engineers or who exactly is responsible? Maybe you could think about what makes good or bad architecture or maybe like other prizes for good or bad design. And frankly, are prizes for bad design or any worst of category really necessary? Because it seems a little harsh to me. Now, if either of those fail to get the conversation flowing, you can throw this one out at them. A group of architects and engineers are dreaming big and have plans to build a real-life Minas Tirith, the fictional capital of Middle-earth from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The group is attempting to raise 1.8 billion British pounds or 2.9 billion dollars in 60 days and 60 days alone through the crowdsourcing site Indiegogo in order to realize the project. The project would begin construction in 2016 and would hopefully finish by 2023. The city would be a mirror image of the Minas Tirith as pictured in Peter Jackson's film franchise Lord of the Rings with a total of five tiers comprised of both live and work spaces. Of the 1.85 billion the group is trying to raise, 15 million pounds would cover the land expenses, which the group is looking to two different spots in southern England. 188 million would go for labor, and 1.4 billion would go towards materials. So, should you want to get involved in this project, for a pledge of 100,000 British pounds, you can become a Lord or Lady of the City, which includes a seat on the city's executive committee, invitations, of course, to all the exclusive parties, and use of a horse-drawn carriage within the city walls. Because, of course, we all have a horse-drawn carriage just waiting to be used. All right, so if you don't have that kind of cash, for 75 pounds, you can receive, and I'm totally going to mess this name up, three hairs of Galadriel. Galadriel. Driel. Ugh. Which, quote, we will send you three strands of Galadriel's silver gold hair. Or for 15 pounds, you can get your name carved on the large stone monument in the center of the city. Seems like, uh... 15 pounds is really the most budget-friendly option, but also the coolest. Your name could be carved in stone. It could be kind of cool and would last a really long time. But of course, you better hurry because they only have nine more days to raise their funds. So, you know, hop to it. All right, so that does it for us at the prep talk. Good luck this weekend and try not to be too awkward out there. All right, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>